Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash alley for American meat delivered right to your front door. That's goodranchers.com slash alley. All right, guys, I am super excited for you to hear this interview today with our new friend, Calvin Robinson. He is a British political commentator. He's a journalist. He's a policy advisor, and he is also the senior fellow at the Research Institute Policy Exchange. The reason I wanted to talk to him today is because he was rejected for a position within the Church of England because of his politics, specifically because of something that he said about institutional racism in the UK and really denying its existence. And so I thought it would be interesting just to hear his story, why he is a conservative, both politically and theologically. We ended up getting into a lot of stuff that I didn't realize we were going to get into COVID policy. We talked a little bit about the difference in gun policy in the United States versus the UK. We talked about what the Bible says about marriage, about women being ordained, why he does not believe in his words that racism is lurking around every corner in the UK. He's a fascinating person, so insightful. Of course, he's got that wonderful British accent, and so he just sounds more sophisticated just because of that. We are also going to end the conversation with a little fun bit. We're going to talk about the Platinum Jubilee, of course, that's celebrating the Queen and her 70-year reign. And I'm going to ask him what he thinks about Meghan Markle and Harry. You might be able to predict a little bit about his opinion, but it's really fun. So you're just going to love this conversation. You're going to learn a lot. And I enjoyed so much talking to him. I really hope that we get to have him back. Um, Before we get into the conversation, let me pause and I'll tell you about our first sponsor for the day. That is Carly Jean Los Angeles. I've talked to you guys about Carly Jean Los Angeles a lot because I genuinely love them. I post about them on Instagram, even though I don't have to post about them. I just do because I love their clothes so much. If you're watching on YouTube, I am wearing a Carly Jean Los Angeles shirt right now. They have a lot of good basic items that are great for any season of life in any season of the year. I'm a simple gal. I've got simple style. I'm not into a bunch of frills and a bunch of loud colors and patterns. That's totally fine if you're into that. I'm not. And so Carly Jean Los Angeles is the capsule clothing company that I really like because of its simplicity, because of the basic beautiful pieces that it provides. It also just makes my life easier. I don't have to think about what I'm going to put on. I can mix and match any time of the year, whether I'm pregnant, postpartum, whatever. I always know that Carly Jean Los Angeles has me covered. They've got great customer service. If you want to reach out to them on Instagram, they will respond to you with sizing advice and give you kind of any kind of clarification or information that you need. If you use my code AllieB, you'll save 20% on your first order of anything in their online store. Just go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use my promo code AllieB. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Mr. Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. For those who may be unfamiliar, can you tell us who you are and what you do? I love that question because I never know how to answer it, but thank you for inviting me. Um, I have just finished studying theology at Oxford, so I was an ordinand. Um, uh, before that, I was a teacher and a deputy head teacher and a school governor. I come from an educational background, but I also do political commentating. I'm a TV presenter on GB News. Uh, I talk about faith 
education and cultural issues. So before we get into what happened with you and the Church of England, which is primarily why I wanted to have you on today, you said that you come from the world of education, and yet you describe yourself as a conservative, correct? Yeah, yeah, quite an oxymoron. Yes, how did that happen? (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I got into education by accident. I was actually in industry, uh, making money and living the high life before. And I got to a point in my life where I wanted to do something more rewarding, more fulfilling. I wanted to give something back. And I got into teaching because I was a computer programmer, a computer scientist. And I thought, this is an area that we need more teachers in. Uh, I could make a difference. To it. And I did for a while. Uh, I loved it. But I did soon find out that it's no place for conservatives. And this mm-hmm. was, you know, this was bewildering to me coming from industry where you're sitting next to lefties, rightists, centrists. Like, it doesn't matter your politics. You just get along and, you know, you work together, you drink together. But in education, it was very much an echo chamber. It was a hive mind of groupthink mentality. And it was Mm. quite actually disturbing. In fact, this is how I became a conservative commentator, because I started writing about the left wing indoctrination that I was seeing in schools. And I stuck my name to it because there were a lot of people that call themselves the secret teacher and the secret blog. And I was like, no, I own this opinion because what I'm seeing is wicked and parents need to be aware of it. Mm. Have you always been conservative then? Um, no, I, I suppose I started out more liberal, at least libertarian, um, the classical liberal, not not the new modern liberal that are actually illiberal and intolerant. But I, I think the older I get, the more conservative I get. Uh, I, I suppose that's the case in, in, in many people's lives. When you actually, when you're invested in your community, when you're invested in whether it's property or paying taxes or, you know, when, when money comes into it, people tend to lean more rights. But also socially, I think as we're seeing our way of life, the Western way of life, be rapidly destroyed. It feels like the, the fall of Rome. I think people are leaning more rights because they want to protect what's important to us. Mm-hmm. I know that we here in the States are very familiar with the liberal indoctrination and the groupthink and really the witch hunts that you kind of described um, is happening there. It's also happening, of course, here in academia. Could you talk a little bit more about that, about that experience, what you started writing about, what you... Um, recorded scene in academia there and what was the response to your observations? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, it started during a general election that we had over here, voting for our government of power. Um, And in the staff room, in the common room, teachers will say, so who are you voting for? And I honestly didn't realize that this was a rhetorical question, that you're supposed to say the Labour Party, which is, of course, the left-wing party. And when was this? When was this? This would have been 2015. Okay. So this was before the Brexit referendum, before Donald Trump, before all of that, before politics went absolutely crazy. Um, But I said, you know, I'm voting for the Conservatives. And jaws literally dropped. People were astounded by this. They couldn't believe it. But but you don't hate children. Well, how would you vote for the Conservatives? (laughs) It's it's like that false dichotomy. Yes. But from then on, any time the Conservative government implemented any policy that they didn't like. It was my personal fault. You know, they come up to me Mm. and and blame me for the situation. I'm like, I don't believe in all the policies that the Conservatives are putting forward, mostly because they're not conservative enough. But, you know, I'm not in government. It's not my fault. Right. And so that's kind of how this, that's how it all started. It was, were you surprised by their surprised reaction to you? Oh, absolutely. Because as I say, working in industry, I'm surrounded by true diversity, diversity right. of thought and opinion of and of politics. In education, that's not the case. You know, we've seen from the polls that 
between 70 to 80 percent of teachers vote for left-leaning parties and a similar number of teachers voted for remain in a brexit referendum and this this is another thing that i saw you know after the referendum the day actually that the results came out of the referendum I was pulled aside in my school because I was still teaching, uh, pulled aside and the executive headmaster, you know, the principal of the school said to me, Calvin, we're aware about your thoughts on Brexit, but uh, please don't mention them in school. And my, my initial response is, well, of course not, because I'm here to teach kids programming. I'm not, I don't see how Brexit would come up, but fair enough, I won't mention it. But going around the school the rest of that day, I understood very quickly that I was the only person they'd said that too, because right. all the Ramona teachers, all the Remain voting teachers were saying, oh, it's so awful. Oh, it's, you know, and we love our European friends and, and thinking it's an anti-European thing when, of course, it was an anti-federalist thing, but also saying, oh, I know we're going to see the same situation in America. We're seeing the same thing with Donald Trump. It's like this natural assumption that Brexit is bad. Donald Trump is bad. Anything slightly right or center is not just wrong, but bad. But they were allowed to say it. They were allowed to express those thoughts and opinions to the young kids, to the children. And this is why we have a whole generation of indoctrinated children. Mm, yes. And I'm finding myself having more questions than I thought that I would about this segment of your story. <laughs> so I do want to get into everything that happened with the Church of England, but I'm just curious, as a conservative in the UK, I mean, I, I remember when Boris Johnson was elected and it was kind of seen that, oh, what's happening in America with Trump is also happening in the UK. But from my understanding and observation of commentators like you, Boris Johnson has kind of been a disappointment to the conservatives, correct? Well, yes, yeah, somewhat. I mean, somewhat. we mostly voted him to get Brexit done, and he okay. did get Brexit done. Okay. But since then, I think his response to COVID was atrocious. But his in his gut reaction was spot on. You know, he is well. I I thought he was a libertarian, so I thought he'd be protecting our civil liberties and he'd uh, let us get on with our lives and give us advice as a government, but not dictate our lives. Unfortunately, he capitulated and went down the same route as all other Western governments and took away our civil liberties. You know, in this country, an English home is his castle. No one in the law or otherwise should have any right to say who you invite into your own home. But we did get to that stage where you were dictated to on how many people were allowed in your house, who they were, whether you were allowed to touch them, whether you could hug a loved one or not. These were all in government guidance and regulations way overstepping the mark. So he's disappointed me on that regard. But we found out through leaks that his initial response was to be the mayor from Jaws, you know, just open up the beach and let people get on with it. I think that might have been a better situation because locking down the country has actually resulted in more deaths through undiagnosed cancer, through mental health crises right. and suicide rates. But also, of course, the economy is, is kaput. So why do you think that he denied his own instincts on that? Do you think it was because he was just afraid of the constituency? Does it have anything to do with, I know some people have talked about him being buddy-buddy with the World Economic Forum, like a lot of our leaders here, and just being afraid of what the WHO would say? Or do you just think it's just, you know, sheer politics? He just thought it politically would be more advantageous for him to be a little bit more restrictive. I think at first it was a scary situation. He didn't know what yeah. to do. And he, he is a politician that takes advice on board. Unfortunately, quite you know too often, it, we often hear that Boris Johnson goes with whoever's the last person to speak to him. Um, but you know, off, the problem here is that after he did that initial lockdown, he, he doubled down on it because then it became political. He didn't want to mm. have be seen to have made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So of course, we had more lockdowns. And then we had the same situation with the vaccines, like this was seen as our way out, whether they worked or not, whether they were good for kids or not, we were seeing them being pushed down our throats, because this is the, the political answer, rather than the right answer. 
Do you think that the same phenomenon happened in the UK as it did in the US and that some more moderate and even liberal people realized because of the restrictions that came with the lockdowns that came with COVID that the government really isn't your friend and that maybe giving over all of your rights to the government isn't a great idea. Like, did you see that kind of shift happening in people who don't necessarily consider themselves conservative? I wish I, I saw the opposite, and it, mm. it goes along with the old saying, doesn't it? The, you know, the, the scariest words words to ever hear are "We are the government, and we're here to help you." But actually. I thought this was a country built on freedom, built on liberty, much like America. Uh, but I found out that it's not. And most people care more about safetyism than they do their own liberties. And people would happily give away more freedoms in order to feel safe, whether it was truly making them safe or not. They were happy for that feeling. And part of this is down to Project Fear. You know, our government enforced a lot of poor draconian regulations, but also it's the propaganda that went along with them. You know, we had official government slogans saying, don't kill granny, for example. How horrible is mm -hmm. that to tell a young child that by hugging their grandparents, by showing love and compassion to, to their family, that they are potentially going to kill them? Uh, and the problem with all of this is that the propaganda worked and it's so difficult to reverse. You know, people know now, well, they knew then, I suppose, that mosques don't really work. They don't really do anything for an aerosol virus. However, we still see people walking around with them on because they're afraid. People are terrified for their lives. Mm -hmm. People are terrified. And also, as you said, it's propaganda and it's moral extortion. Uh, in yes. the form of propaganda, because if you believe and have been told and just have it ingrained in your mind that you are a good, caring person, a good Christian, even we saw a lot of that propaganda here that you're really loving your neighbor. If you wear a cloth mask or if you don't go see your grandmother who has been isolated in the nursing home for the past six months, that's you being a good person. People are still attached to that outward signal of virtue. And if that becomes a form of your identity or that becomes a form of what you think is morality and expression of virtue, that is very hard to let go of. It's very hard to let go of such a deeply ingrained idea, but even more than that, it's hard to let go of an identity that you have yeah. put on of being the good America, uh, the good American, the responsible and scientific citizen. I think that's part of it too, that people have just gotten so wrapped up in what they think the covid restrictions uh represent as far as someone's morality goes 100 percent. but it's not about being a good person really is it it's about being seen to be a good person mm. it's much harder to actually do good this is yeah. why virtue signaling is so popular because it's far easier to look like a good person than it is to be a good person and i think you're right in that the christian angle of this was really used and abused actually we had the archbishop of canterbury who is of course the the primate of the anglican communion saying that well effectively moralizing the vaccine suggesting that to be a good christian you have to love your neighbor and therefore in order to love your neighbor you have to take a vaccine that doesn't actually protect your neighbor you know the whole purpose of it was apparently to protect you even though it doesn't actually do that either but just using the faith as a political weapon that is wicked you know we saw churches and cathedrals saying you could only enter if you could prove your vaccine status Jesus Christ mingled with the lepers. Right. And people with COVID are just people carrying a cold or a flu, for goodness sake. They're not even as bad as lepers. So, of course, Jesus wouldn't close his, God's house to, to people. But the church did. And it went further than that. You know, the government suggested that uh, non-essential businesses had to close for the lockdowns. 
the churches went above and beyond and closed the churches too, even though the government didn't recommend that at first. And not only did they, ch- they close the churches to the people, the faithful masses, the congregations, they closed the churches to the priests. They said, wow. you can no longer go in your parish church and pray for your parishioners. That, again, is wicked. Wow, that is wicked. And that's a perfect transition into what I originally wanted to talk to you about today, because you have... Um, you have seen the consequences, you have experienced the consequences of the politicization of the Church of England and the Archbishop of Canterbury, if I am understanding correctly. Now, here in the United States, especially we Protestants here in the United States, we don't totally understand kind of the governing structure of of the church in England. So if you could just take us kind of from the beginning, I know that you just said that you studied theology at the University of Oxford. And from what I understand, you were looking for a particular position in the Church of England, and you were denied that because of your politics, because of specifically, I think, things that you have said about institutional racism in the UK. So can you just start us from the beginning Talk to yeah. us in layman's terms as yeah. Protestants in the United States. You don't know anything about the structure okay. of the Church of England. What exactly happened? I'll try. This is the greatest shame about um, the formational training that I've received in that they don't just teach you theology. They teach you a whole new language and then you get wrapped up in it and you get caught in a churchy bubble and you yeah. say a load of words that don't actually mean anything. So yeah. I'll try and break it down to, to <laughs> okay. normal language. Thank you. Um, so towards the end of your trip, so I, I was doing two years at Oxford, and at the end of your first year, you, you tend to be assigned a parish, a church that you will work in as an assistant priest, uh, we call it a curate, um, once you leave. So you have to have it kind of lined up before you start your second year or your final year. And I did. I, so I was assigned by my bishop a, a parish. Uh, I met the, the priest there. We built a good relationship. I'd been to services there and met some of the people. Uh, and we were looking forward to working together. Uh, I was looking forward to my curacy. Um, and things went quiet for a while with, between my bishop and, and I. Um, and I saw, I, I understood. So there's, there's a hierarchy of bishops and my bishop doesn't really have any jurisdictional power because my bishop is um, what's called a flying bishop. He's responsible for traditionalists within the Church of England. So people like myself who don't believe um, in the ordination of women, don't believe in uh, that the church should head towards homosexual marriage, uh, people who believe in Christian teaching essentially and believe in the faith that was handed down to us from Christ through the apostles. Um, in the Bible, um, but there is there's provision available for traditionalists within the Church of England, and my bishop, although he is responsible for me, has no direct power. His boss is the Bishop of London, who is a lady bishop, um, and she took issue with my politics. And I knew this because obviously, you know, I'm a political commentator. I'm, I'm quite outspoken, but I, I try to at least center all of my positions around my faith. So I try to be a good Christian. And of course, being a cr- good Christian means that we understand that we're all fallen. None of us are perfect. So we do make mistakes every now and then. Uh, so I would have uh, appreciated some charity. But what I quickly came to learn is that the Bishop of London did not want me in her diocese, in her area, in London. She didn't want me ordained in London, even if it wasn't by her. Uh, and I had a chat with my bishop, the Bishop of Fulham, and I said, you know, what's happening with my curacy? You know, I thought it would have been announced by now. And he said, no, we've had to delay the announcement. And I eventually mm-hmm. got, out, got out of him. He said, the Bishop of London does not want you ordained in her diocese, but I'm going to tell her the next time I see her that if she wants to 
I'm not going to do her dirty work. If she wants you gone, she's going to have to do it herself. Mm-hmm. And then I heard nothing for weeks. And then it became months. And I chased up my bishop again and said, can we have a chat? And he'd, we had a chat. And he said, look, it's not going to work. There's, it's going to be too turbulent. Too many people will complain about you and what you say in public. And I was taken aback, but I was, I was willing to work through it. I said, okay, so if people are complaining about me, if it's too turbulent, show me the complaints. I'll pray on them. I'll discern on them. And I improve. I'm not trying to cause offense. I'm trying right. to proclaim the truth. And that can be divisive at times. I get that. Um, but he said, no, we can't share the complaints with you. So I'm stuck in a rut here. I'm like, you know, my curacy right. has been cancelled or taken away or indefinitely postponed because of complaints, but I'm not allowed to see them. So I don't know what to do. So I sent a subject access request. So this is like freedom of information request, but for personal information. And by UK law, any organization that holds your personal data, now that could just be your name, your date of birth, your telephone number, it doesn't have to be really intimate, but anyone who processes or holds your data has to share it with you if you request it. So I put one of these into the church and then it was like Watergate because I found out that actually there'd only been less than a handful of complaints about me. And for someone with, you know, I've got quite a significant following on social right. media and I'm on national broadcast. I expected quite a lot more, to be honest. I was a little mm-hmm. bit disappointed. <laughs> but um, I had less than a handful and they were silly. You know, Calvin Robinson went on TV last week and said that men need to be more masculine. Uh-oh. Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, men do need to be more masculine. This yes. is, we have a massive issue with fatherlessness. We have a massive issue with men not taking responsibility. Uh, it, and this is why we have such high abortion rates. And this is why we have such yeah. high single parenthood rates. And yeah. this is how, why also we have so much crime and homelessness and mental health. And all of these, a lot of this revolves around men need to be more masculine and forget this whole toxic, toxic masculine argument because it's just making us more effeminate and it's the downfall of our society. But anyway, that's one of the complaints. <laughs> But what I found, actually, Ali, was that there, there were more complaints about me from within the church. And I noticed that there's one bishop who had been complaining about me consistently from before I started my training um, to the Bishop of London, but also to the Archbishop of Canterbury. So all the way up the top of the hierarchy, he'd right. been sending complaints saying, look at Calvin Robinson's tweet. Um, and the issue that he had against me was that Calvin Robinson does not believe in institutional racism. Mm. And I dig, dig further, and he said, Calvin Robinson does not think this country is institutionally racist, therefore we should keep a close eye on his ordination, i.e. we should not ordain this man because he doesn't fall in line with our politics. Uh, and, you know, I don't think this country is institutionally racist. I think the United Kingdom is one of the best places in the world to live. I think we have equality of opportunity. We have equality under the law. If you work hard enough, you can achieve anything. You can reach the highest office, just as you can in America. And I think that's something to celebrate and promote. And I'm sick and tired of people taking on board critical race theory and dividing us based on the color of our skin. And it's you know, people like this bishop are always, it's always the metropolitan liberal elite. It's always the the white middle class with their guilt that are actually the racists first and foremost. And they accuse everyone else of being racist. They're projecting because it's that we want you to be a good little black man and take on board the opinions that we think good little black men should have. We don't want you to form your own opinions. We don't want you to have your own politics. You should do as you say, and we'll pat you on the back. And we'll give you, maybe we'll give you a little bit of a promotion every now and then. But, you know, and when the time's right, and we don't want to replace ourselves. And I was I was outraged, so I spoke to uh, I spoke to the Bishop of London, and I said, you know, 
I, I think it's quite divisive when you say that uh, the church is institutionally racist. Um, and she put her arm on me and she said, her hand on me, and she said, but Calvin, I can tell you as a white woman, the church is institutionally racist. And then I realized so I'm she's lost. white for people, for people who are just listening to this, oh, yeah. you are not white. <laughs> she is white and she is correcting you, telling you that the church is institutionally racist. And I guess right. she has some authority right. to do so. And you asked the question in an op-ed, basically, why is it a problem? I'm paraphrasing that you don't believe that racism is lurking around every corner. Why is that a problem? Of all the things that you believe, like I would actually think that your views on LGBTQ, your views on women being ordained, of course, I agree with you on both of those things. That's considered very controversial even here in the United yeah. States. So I imagine in the UK that I think is probably even more liberal that that's very controversial. But it was this. It was this, that as a black man, you are not allowed to argue with the existence of institutional racism. Why do you think this was the sticking point? I, because we're stuck in critical race theory, it's everywhere. So the church put out a report called Lament to Action that claims that the church is institutionally racist. And it said it's deeply institutionally racist and that we should apologize for our horrible past. And I looked at, I tried to find evidence to, for this claim, but there was none. The only evidence was the Archbishop of Canterbury claiming this. And then the church put out another report claiming that the country is institutionally racist. So I tried to find evidence of that. And it just pointed back to the previous report, which pointed back to the Archbishop of Canterbury making a statement. You know, there is no there's no first principles involved here. There's no actually looking at the issues in order to find the problems so we can solve them. It's just this self-flagellation. It's, it's all built on white guilt. It's all from a very patronizing, old-fashioned form of racism, actually. And the church put forward, you know, affirmative action. It put forward what they call positive discrimination. Now, I don't think that any discrimination is positive, but they've put measures in place now that every leadership position in the church must have a short list um, when it's advertised of 30 percent uh, what they call UK minority ethnics, what you guys would uh, know as BIPOC, or over here we usually use the term BAME. All of these terms I find offensive because it just homogenizes all non-white people mm -hmm. under right. one bracket as if we all think alike, vote alike, talk alike, and right. pray alike, which is, of course, nonsense. That in, in itself is racist. Yeah. But for, to suggest that 30% of all leadership positions must have a short list of, of ethnic minorities in a country that only has between 12 and 14% ethnic minorities, and half of those are Muslims, I don't understand where the church thinks it's going to get these people from. Wow. Yeah. But, but it's virtue signaling, isn't it? Yes. It's just looking good. It's like, yeah, we want 30% of, yeah, we need more of you brown people. It's, for goodness sake, stop it. Okay, what did I tell you guys? I told you that this was going to be an awesome conversation, and isn't it? And I'm so sorry that I have to pause it for just a second, but I got to tell you about our second sponsor of the day, and that is Birch Gold. So I don't have to tell you guys that the economy is really unstable right now. No matter what the Biden administration says, whatever propaganda they put out on Twitter, we all know things are crazy. Things are unstable. Prices are high. Gas is absolutely out of control. It seems like service is slow and nothing is back to normal. And if you are looking for more uh, financial security, then you need to look into 
Birch Gold. It is the company that so many people trust to help them convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold and silver. Not only will Birch Gold help you fortify your savings in precious metals, they'll help you do it in a tax sheltered account. Text Allie to 989-898 to get started. Amazon stock is down 37% in the first half of the year. Tesla is down 40%. Cryptos have been slammed and many fear the hawkish moves by the Fed could stall the economy even further. So in order to have a plan in place, check out Birch Gold. You can get a free no obligation info kit by texting Allie to 989-898. That's Allie to 989-898. It's one kind of diversity. Obviously, they don't want ideological diversity. They don't want theological diversity. They don't want any other kind of diversity. They only want the kind of diversity that you can see, which goes back to our conversation about virtue signaling, that they really only want diversity of melanin. Here in the United States, they definitely, the left wing in this country, certainly believe that there is going to be this coalition of non-white people who are going to raise their fist for communism and overtake capitalism and what they see as the white supremacist majority, whatever it is. But they are also being disappointed by the fact that demographic change isn't necessarily equating to more democratic voters. I mean, there are a lot of Hispanic voters that are becoming more Republican. And so, as you as you said, um, just because you have um, a certain melanin count or a certain nationality, that does not necessarily mean that you are going to be on the side of the left. So that's going to be an interesting evolution over the next few years. But how is this particular situation for you going to evolve? What's next? Is it done? Are you still trying to um, take this particular position within the Church of England, or are you just kind of saying, fine, you don't want me, you don't want my views, I'm out? I'll answer that, but just to address your point a minute ago, we're seeing the same thing over here as well as you're seeing in the UK. The ethnic minorities are voting for the right-wing parties, and it's the, it's the white liberals on the left who are saying, no, because we don't want to be seen as racist, we must vote for the left-wing parties. They, they're not listening. Even though they're saying, we need to listen to more ethnic minority voices, they're only listening to, listening to the ones that sound like them. It's it's so sad. But what am I going to do next? Um I honestly don't think there's a place for me in the Church of England. I don't, even if they turned around to, to me tomorrow and said, look, okay, we'll take it all back, we'll ordain you. I don't think in good conscience I could. I, if an organization sees itself as racist institutionally, and the top three most powerful influential people in that organization tend to be, happen to be white middle class, and they're not doing anything about it, either you know they're complicit in this structural right. racism, or they're incompetent, and they should step down and by their own ideology, they should be replaced by, I think, minorities. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's just virtue signaling again. They don't want to actually do anything about it. Um, but I, cu- I couldn't. So I've moved to GAFCON, which I understand is, is a much bigger uh, organization or movement in the United States than it is here. But I'm hoping to provide some momentum uh, because GAFCON is a group of Anglicans um, around the world. You know, Anglicanism is massively uh, orthodox in Africa, on the African continent, for example. Um, it's Anglicans that have seen the way that the church is going, you know, very woke, very liberal, progressive, and trying to essentially rewrite scripture in order to look better by modern day standards. And that's not mm-hmm. what the, the faith is about. So the GAFCON movement says, no, we are adhering to um, the faith, adhering to the scriptures, and we're going to be Orthodox Anglicans. So I'm very happy to be joining that movement, and I'll be ordained in a few weeks, actually, as a deacon um, in a church in London. 
That's great. I heard you say in an interview recently, which I just thought was a great way to put it, that relevance is irrelevant when it comes to theology, when it comes to the direction that the church should go. The people who were interviewing you were kind of taken aback by that. Well, you want the church to go back a thousand years. That's got to be a terrible thing. And you basically said, no, that would be that would be a great thing. We should be staying steady because the scriptures haven't changed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's this idea that we need to chase social um, norms and and liberal progressive views. That's you know that's counter to what we should be doing because I think the way that society is changing is so rapid. People can't keep up. You know, people who are celebrated one moment, like J.K. Rowling, are cancelled the next because you can never be woke enough, and the movement is is evolving at a speed that normal people can't keep up with unless you're obsessed with the movement itself. And the church or the faith should be. A shining light in an ever darkening world. It should be countercultural. It should stand out and say, here is an alternative. If you're sick of being lied to, if you're sick and tired of being told there are 99 genders when you know there are two, if you're sick and tired of being told that you're an oppressor or a racist because you're white, whether overtly or covertly, and you can't escape it because it's the new original sin, or if you're sick and tired of being told that you're a victim because you're black, even though you know you can succeed and you have made a life for yourself, and you're sick and tired of all these lies being pushed down your throat all the time, here is the truth. Mm-hmm. And the truth is in this book. It is the Bible. It, the truth is Jesus Christ himself. And he teaches us how to live. He teaches us what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. And we shouldn't be looking to these woke ideologues to tell us otherwise. Yep. You described cancel culture so well in that the standard of morality is ever changing because it doesn't actually have a foundation. It doesn't have anything to stand on. And because it doesn't have a foundation, it has no limiting principle. So of course, it's just going to be dictated by social whims. Of course, it's going to change on a day-to-day basis. But as you articulated so well, Christianity stands firm because Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he is what we stand on, then of course, our theology should not be changed by the progressive whim of the moment. And I'm interested to hear you articulate, if you can, just kind of summarize. We've talked about it many times on this podcast, why we believe in the importance of the definition of marriage as we see in Genesis, as we see reflected in Revelation, as we see reiterated throughout Scripture as between one man and one woman. But I'm interested for you to hear you um, summarize your perspective on that or your view on that and why you are against the sanctioning of homosexual marriage within the church, as well as your view on women being ordained. These are two of the most controversial stances that you can take, even in the States, even in evangelicalism in the States. So I'm just interested to hear your defense of that well for me it comes down to the family first and foremost the family is the cornerstone of western democracy it's the cornerstone of our way of life and this is why the communists the neo-marxists always want to destroy it this is why they say that you know a child belongs to the state it's the state's role to bring children up rather than the parent because we know fundamentally that it's a parent's role to educate their children it's a parent's role to pass on values to their children and it's a parent's role to make sure that they are producing a good uh, positive i would say a good christian but you could if you're not faithful you could say just helping produce a good character to send out to be a, a contributor to society now if we want to have community if we want to have a sense of belonging and and love and be live in a good place live in a good society 
family is where that starts. It's the first community that we're involved in. And then we have the wider, we have the parish, we have the wider social community, we have our school or our workplace, and then we have our nation. And this is why nationhood is also very important. And this is why if you look at what the Marxists are doing, or the neo-Marxists, whatever you want to call them, they're breaking down the family unit. They're saying, actually, we want to destroy heteronormative families because that's going to fundamentally take children away from their parents. But also it's going to stop our reproductive cycles because the whole purpose of having family being or marriage being one man one woman is for procreation and if you say that that heteronormativity is bad and one man and one woman marrying each other is a is a old-fashioned idea then you're going to go down a different route that actually takes takes away the the procreation and the 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 spreading of the seed and the and the the multiplying and creating nations and creating disciples um but also on a so that's on the family side of things but also on a wider structural situation what we're seeing is you know that all these all these movements that say they are anti-capitalist are actually anti-democracy because the opposite of communism isn't capitalism capitalism isn't an ideology Mm -hmm. capitalism is a mechanism it's a tool set that we use to get by the opposite of communism is liberal democracy and that's what we have in the west and that's essentially what they're trying to destroy by destroying the family yeah you're absolutely right i think that's a really good way to look at it we typically use an alliteration when we're talking about biblically why we believe in the definition of marriage. It's rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout scripture. It's repeated by Jesus in Matthew 19. It is representative of Christ in the church in Ephesians 5, and therefore it is reflective of the oh, gospel. Yes. Well, you, you, you could, I, this is what I forget. Well, I'm on an American show right now. We can actually talk about the faith without being embarrassed. It's, it's fantastic. Yes. So I'll answer the second part of your question on yeah. why I don't believe in the ordination of women. Yeah. And it is for several reasons. But first of all, the priest is in persona Christi. The p- priest at the altar during the sacrifice is representing Christ himself. And Christ, and when when Christ became a man, when God became man incarnate, he chose a man. Like ch- Christ chose when he was going to be born. He chose where, and he chose in what setting, on purpose. He doesn't do anything by accident. God does not do accidents. Um, so first and foremost. In- Personality is a man. Secondly, it's not in the Bible for female ordination, whether it be presbyter or episcopate, so whether it be priest or a bishop, there was no such thing. And again, that wasn't by accident. Christ chose his 12 apostles to be men for a reason. And that's not, you know, people will say, what about equal rights? It's nothing to do with rights. It's nothing to do with equality. You know, the Bible clearly shows that men and women are equal, but different. Equal does not mean the same. Mm-hmm. That's another misnomer we have going on at the moment, that equal seems to mean that we have, that there is no difference between us. There are very clear biological differences between men and women. Men are tend to be physically stronger, which is why the, now that we're allowing men into women's sports, we're seeing women get demolished. It's just it's natural. Right. Uh, it's not a good thing. Uh, but the whole point of complementarianism is that women are better at other things, such as being more maternal. Uh, and and even saying that, I, I know that people are going to frown upon it, suggesting that women are more caring and empathetic, empathetic than men. But it is, you know, it's a biological truth. Um, and when Christ talks about situations of mothering, uh, as he does, he says, you know, in, t- in times God mothers uh, all of us as his children, that's the wording he uses, because that that's what it means to be maternal. However, when he tells us to talk to God, the Father, 
he does use that word father. He uses that word Abba. And so all of these progressive movements that are saying, you know, oh, maybe God's a woman. Maybe we should call God she. Or how do you know God's gender? Actually, God told you his gender pronouns. And if you want to disregard them, that's on you. That's your blasphemy. Yep, exactly. It reminds me of Genesis 1 when God creates man and says, let us make man in our image. It seems like that's what human beings are doing today. Let us make God in our image trying to right, turn those God. two things from genesis god right. made them male and female and god made them in his image so those two things suggest that first of all god designed you the way you are either man or woman and because he designed you the way you are you are your body and he loves you and your body because you are your body he loves you for who you are therefore you should love yourself for who you are and this idea that we can change our body and change our gender is with whether it's surgery or whatever you want to call it, mutilation, that is an affront to God. That is disregarding his love. Yes. I read this book. I don't know if you've read it. It's called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. And she does a wonderful job of um, talking from both a theological and also philosophical perspective of why Christianity regards the body the way that it does. I think a lot of people have this idea that Christianity is just about denying the body and denying bodily passions, and it's not. It's about putting bodily passions in the right context and using our bodies, stewarding our bodies, how God created them, that we actually have a telos, a purpose, that we were made teleologically in the sense that our bodies have a purpose that we cannot decide, that we cannot declare, that we cannot choose. Because God created us, he not only tells us what our bodies are, but tells us that our bodies tell us who we are. And those two things cannot be detached. But you can kind of see in this whole progressive postmodern world where you think that you are self-creating, self-declaring, self-identifying, that you do detach the the body from the mind to say that the mind can dictate what the body is. Christianity, as you mentioned earlier, has to be a refuge against not just what is confusion, but also is moral chaos and anarchy. And as we have seen so many times, ends in destruction, not just for society at large, but also for the individual. Ali, I need to get you to come and preach in my church, honestly. (laughs) You're fantastic, but you're spot on, you know, and a lot of it is our own side. I'm assuming you're on the right of politics here with this. Because the left are massive collectivists and they want to put us in these big boxes, whether, you know, we talked about BIPOC, BAME, UKME, yes. whatever, but they, they label us by our immutable characteristics so that they can own us, they can control us. And they can say, you know, we, as Joe Biden has said, you know, if you don't vote Democrat, you ain't black. Like it's this assumption that by your immutable characteristics, you owe them your vote. But our response on the right is hyper-individualism. It's actually the, the each person owns their label and owns their immutable characteristics to the point of you're still identifying as Afro-American or African-American or or Black British or whatever, and you're putting your own personal identity in front of everything. And this is why we have Black theology and queer theology and all of these things, because we are creating ourselves as individual gods. And the Christian answer is somewhere in between, as if we are individuals and we are unique um, and special and loved by God. But we're also, we have that collective element too, in that we have a sense of obligation and duty to our community, to our family, and we can't get by on our own. But more importantly, there's something bigger than us. There's something bigger than us as individuals, and that is God. Uh, and, and that's the whole point of the Christian faith, teaching us how to enter that relationship, that ever-evolving, that, that loving relationship um, of God, which is why he is a trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because it's, it's, it's an everlasting relationship of love. 
and we are invited to join that. Um, And the moment we step away from it and create ourselves as gods, we are turning our back on him, turning our back on love. And that is sin. Yep. And that also reminds me what you said of God being in perpetual community with himself, perpetual fellowship with himself. Mm -hmm. And we are made in his image, which means that we also need community and fellowship, not just to thrive, but also to survive. That also goes back to why COVID lockdowns didn't work, because it goes against human nature. It is cruel. That's why something like solitary confinement is even sometimes seen as cruel and unusual punishment. It's the worst thing that you can put someone through because we are made in God's image, who, as you said, is in perpetual community with himself. Last sponsor for the day, you know them, you love them, and that is Good Ranchers. I know there are a lot of you out there who have already bought Good Ranchers, but there are a lot of you out there who have been thinking about buying Good Ranchers and you haven't, you haven't done it yet. Well, I am here to tell you that today is your day because they've got an amazing deal with my promo code, Ali. They are including with your order two free 18 ounce prime center cut ribeyes. So use code Allie at goodranchers.com or you can just use my link goodranchers.com slash Allie and you will get that deal. Plus it's already super affordable. You can either make a one-time purchase, you can get your box of meat. So that's American beef or chicken or seafood or all of those combined and it'll show up to your front door individually wrapped on dry ice or you can go ahead and subscribe. When you do, you will save $25 on each box. So it's super affordable, makes your life easier. You've already got one part of your dinner already decided for every night and that just makes things a lot more convenient. And I think that if you are a mom that's running around, you've got a million things to do, you are looking for convenience in your life. This makes for a great gift too, for your dad, your father, your grandfather, your husband for Father's Day. So go ahead, go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. You'll get those two free 18 ounce boneless ribeyes when you do. Goodranchers.com slash Allie. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. I want to get your perspective on something that is not necessarily theological, although I guess you could argue that everything is essentially theological. But Can I just put a quick challenge out based on what you just said? Yeah, go because for I, it. Because I want to challenge it. the Christians, because a lot yes. of Christians, especially uh, who are on our side, have said to me, well, what's happened to you is all for Calvin. I don't need a church. I, I'm a Christian. I'm at home. I do my own prayers. I say my own prayers. I don't need to go to a church. I, I just want to put a challenge out there because it's so important because our faith is not something you can do on your own. It's not an individualistic faith. The scripture says that when two or three are gathered in his name, he is with us. We have to be in a community. And of course, it's, it's difficult because we're all fallen. Therefore, institutions that are made up of people are also fallen. But it's our, our challenge is to be a part of that community uh, for the reasons you just articulated. Yes. And I think that they can also take cues from you in seeking a church and seeking a community that is based on the scriptures and is not being dictated by the latest demands of the social justice elite and making sure that they are um, orthodox in their theology. Um, All right. The next question that I have, there's not really like a smooth transition into it. I'm just curious and was curious as you were speaking about this from your British perspective. I know that you're conservative. That doesn't mean we necessarily see everything the same um, just because culture is different. So I'm curious about your answer to the question. If someone were to ask you, what is the difference in Britain 
and the United States when it comes to guns and crime. Because of course there's crime and murder there in the UK, but one question that a lot of conservatives are asked because we have so many guns here in the United States and we have a second amendment, is why do the kind of mass shootings that we see in the US not happen in somewhere like the UK? Is it just because of the gun laws? I had a follower who lives in the UK say, well, actually, she believes that it is because in the UK, people are generally less vitriolic. They're less angry online. They're less kind of impassioned in the debates and the conversations that they have. So there's not as much anger. I have no idea if that's true. I'm just kind of curious what you think about that. Yeah, I don't think I'd uh, subscribe to that generalization. I think people in general are roughly the same, especially in Western nations. Um, we're becoming more tribal, more polarized, and actually more vitriolic. And I think the internet is is the devil's playground. The internet is, has a lot to answer for in that regard, because we're all finding our own individual silos with people that think like us and agree with us, and we're living in our own echo chambers. So the moment we see or hear something we disagree with, we don't know how to handle it anymore. And I think the church used to be a good answer for this, because the church is the true home of diversity, because you have young and old, white and black, male and female, everyone coming together from a place rooted in a place and we don't have place anymore we, we people live together don't even know their next door neighbors anymore uh, never mind people from their local church so i think that's part of it but back to the guns we did have so we have stricter gun controls obviously and um, we used to have the uh, the right to bear arms in this country that was taken away a long time ago but i think it was taken away at a time when it was possible obviously with america now having more guns than people uh, by a big count it's not possible but also i struggle with it because biblically christ says we should all own swords and if you don't own one sell your clothes you know sell your cloak and buy a sword um and i think there's something in that having the ability to protect yourself um not just from other people but from the government i really do, do truly believe in your second amendment i think it's, it's fantastic well sorry is it first no, second it's second. Speech, right? it's second. You're right. Oh, it is mm-hmm. second. First, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, no, I think it's fantastic. The second um, protects the first, we say. Right. Um, but it is an issue. And I think if we look at other countries for comparison, we have to look at other countries with guns. And Israel is a good example. They don't seem to have as many uh, school shootings because the teachers have guns. And I know that's a controversial thing to say. And I know Trump said something similar. But perhaps there's something in that. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's too difficult to judge at the moment. Yeah, I do think I I do think it's difficult to judge. I mean, of course, the easy thing to say is because we have more guns and we have less restrictive gun laws. But as you kind of mentioned with Israel, it's a little bit more complicated and nuanced than that. Actually, I do think it goes a lot deeper than simply the ownership of guns. America has always had guns. We've always had millions of guns. We've always had a very strong gun culture and we haven't had the same problems that we are having today. So I just want to throw that out there, but I appreciate your perspective on that. Last question I want to ask you, and this one is kind of fun. Tell me about the significance of the Platinum Jubilee. I think most people know what it is, but as someone who lives in the UK, is this something that you really care about, that you're excited about? And just in general, I know that we could probably talk about this for a long time, but what are your feelings about the royal family and about Meghan and Harry? We have our own feelings here about Meghan and Harry, but just tell me in general kind of what you think about it all. I think Her Majesty the Queen is fantastic. She's been serving this country for 70 years. And, you know, I'm a big fan of America for a lot of reasons. But one of the things I don't like about America is that the president is the head of state because mm-hmm. we're seeing America get more divided. You know, the left are getting more left wing, the right are getting more right wing. Uh, and this has been going on for years and years. And there's very little common ground between the two parties now. And, you know, even when 
for example, Trump put a really good executive order in against um, discrimination and, and uh, against critical race theory and all that stuff. The left tore it up as soon as they got in, because not because they are pro-discrimination, but because it was a, something that he put in. Mm-hmm. And so it's all getting very polarized. But Her Majesty the Queen is apolitical. And having an apolitical figure or head of state is fantastic because, first of all, she can hold our prime ministers to account. So she has weekly meetings with our prime ministers, uh, but also she's above the political system. So we've had, what, 14 prime ministers under her rule? Uh, and she's she's been the consistency there all the time. But she's also a figurehead that brings us together. And I know there are a growing number of Republicans in this country, but they are still a minority. Most people do support the royal family because it's the epitome of Britishness. It is a symbol. Like Much like you guys have your flag, you unite under your flag. Well, we have a living embodiment of Britishness. I think that's quite special because uh, not a lot of places still have that. And the, celebrating the Jubilee, for me, has been the highlight of my year so far, just mm. because... We're so divided, post-Brexit, post-COVID, post all of these issues that are going on. And it's something that just brings us back together, reminds us that we are stronger together as a yeah. British people. And we're British first and foremost before being black, gay, straight, whatever. You know, the left, the woke lot keep telling us that we have to be divided based on our immutable characteristics. Things like the Jubilee are what unite us. And the last time we had that was London 2012 with the Olympics. And of course, that was before all of the Brexit and all of the politics took off. So it's a reminder of a, of a better time, I think. Yeah, we have nothing like that in the United States. Unfortunately, we really don't have anything that I could even see possibly bringing us together. So I certainly can see how, at least from a symbolic standpoint, that that is a unifying force. Do you have any comments about, speaking of unifying, the people who seem the opposite of unifying and very divisive are Meghan and Harry, at least from my vantage point. <laughs> what is what is your perspective on that? I can guess, but I'm curious. Yeah, I knew you weren't going to let me get away with that. Um, I don't like Meghan. I really, really don't like <laughs> Meghan. And, and what I don't like about the situation of Meghan is that anyone that says they don't she like her, at least in this country, yeah. well, yeah, but anyone in this country that says they don't like her is accused of being racist just mm. because she happens to be brown. It, it's almost as if she can do or say anything and she's above reproach because she's brown-skinned. I, I find that repulsive. If we want to live in an equitable society, and I'm not saying we do, but if we want to live in a society that's more equal, at least, everyone should be able to, to hold opinions about anything, whatever their skin color. And for her... To come over here and, you know, you don't, I know you don't have a royal family in America, but you have a very high celebrity culture. Mm-hmm. And she's brought that over here and, and assumed somehow that that's what the royal family is. But no, they're a family rooted in duty, service, obligation, Christian values. And I don't know if she knows what any of those words mean, but she's wanted the fame and the glamour and the glory, but without all of the work that comes along with it. And I don't think she she liked what she saw. And she sulked and, and obviously took Harry off to, to America with her. And not only she, did she do that, but she belittled the royal family and the monarchy. And that is a British institution. You know, the Queen isn't just a person. She is an institution. So when Meghan attacks the royal family by throwing out these random allegations of racism without anything to back them up. Uh, she's she's tearing down a British institution. I think that's abhorrent. And I, I dislike her for that, as well as many other things. You know, she's lied plenty of times in that Oprah Winfrey in, interview that, you know, proven lies. 
Um, she's just a despicable person. It's a great shame that Harry has fallen for her. But, uh, you know, hopefully he'll come around and hopefully he'll bring her with him because obviously I don't believe in divorce as a Christian. So I'm hoping yeah. that he can show her the truth, show her the light. Uh, it look, he looked very sad. He looked very regretful on his recent visit for the Jubilee. It looked like he was missing his old life. And it's understandable. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that we do observe, that he does kind of seem like a sad and sullen person that's just kind of being dragged around now. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that they want privacy. They did the Oprah Winfrey, uh, Winfrey interview to ensure that they got privacy. They had the Spotify podcast to ensure that everyone knew that they wanted to remain private. They've talked about their mansion and released pictures of their kids just so everyone knows that they want to remain private. It has nothing to do with celebrity at all. So at least they're humble if there's one good thing that we can say about them. Um, well, thank you so much. I have so, so enjoyed this. We had some cheers actually over uh, behind the camera when you said that you didn't like Meghan Markle. So I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, yes, I think that uh, we are in agreement over here, but I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on, give us your insight on all of these issues and to tell us the story of what happened with the Church of England. Extremely insightful. So I just appreciate you sharing all of that with us today. Ali, anytime. And like I said, I would love for you to come and preach at my church once I'm ordained. I think you're a fantastic preacher. Keep preaching <laughs> well, a good word. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. God bless.